KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Thursday, July 7th. A SEAL candidate's death raises questions. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. We all know that home prices in San Diego County have been on the rise lately. While a new study by LendingTree says San Diego County has the fourth highest number of $1 million and up homes in the nation. In the U.S., more than 4% of all owned homes are valued at $1 million or more. In San Diego County, it's 13.5%. The state is again trying to place Douglas Badger at a supervised home in San Diego County. Badger is a sexually violent predator, a designation for those convicted of sexually violent offenses and diagnosed with a mental health disorder that makes them likely to offend. Last year, the Department of State Hospitals tried to put Badger in a home in Mount Helix, then in Rancho Bernardo, but neither placement happened. This time, the home is in Borrego Springs. The County Board of Supervisors says it should have veto power over placement decisions, but ultimately, Supervisor Jim Desmond says it's up to state lawmakers. It's got to come down to uh, our folks in Sacramento to change the laws, and and like I said, the attempt was made with uh, Supervisor Jones, but maybe we can get the rest of the you know, contingent together. A judge will decide whether Badger ends up in Borrego. The city of San Diego now has an Office of Immigrant Affairs. The goal of the new office is to make immigrants feel connected to and supported by their city. It will promote resources for immigrants and advocate for immigrant rights. Rita Fernandez, who is Gloria's current director of global affairs, will serve as the office's first executive director. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. So it happened back in February, the death of a Navy SEAL candidate, and it's raising questions about the safety of basic training. Kyle Mullen died of pneumonia just after Hell Week at the SEALs boot camp in Coronado. His family recently released an autopsy that concluded he received inadequate medical care even though he was seriously ill. With the story, we go to KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Regina Mullen says she trusted the SEALs with her son Kyle's life, and they failed him. They're torturing our men. You can't do that to prisoners of war. There's war crimes, and they're doing it to our own athletic, young, bright men that are willing to give up their lives to serve the country. They're torturing them. It's not training. Mullen had played football at Yale and Monmouth University. He died February 4th, hours after finishing Hell Week. The endurance test is part of the notoriously difficult SEAL basic training. The autopsy confirms her son was left alone in the barracks with other candidates who had also showed signs of being sick. Kyle Mullen was found unresponsive on the barracks floor after another candidate called for medical help for himself. 
Severe pneumonia, untreated severe pneumonia. There's no way a 23-year-old healthy boy should die of severe pneumonia. And that's a disgrace that he was not treated for days. They knew he had it. He was found with a 36-ounce bottle filled with his own blood and mucus. The autopsy revealed Mullen died of Streptococcus pyogenes, a type of pneumonia often associated with military bases. Regina Mullen is a registered nurse. She says her son was struggling to breathe when he called her a few hours before he died. You all knew that my son was compromised. The medical team, the instructors, the lieutenant, the commander had to have known. They were all seeing the guy spitting up blood. You, you sent him to the barracks, sent the medical team home, and you let him die. Hell Week is virtually unchanged since at least the 1970s. For nearly a week, candidates are submerged in the Pacific Ocean, forced to continually swim or march with boats on their back. They get little sleep. Some SEALs say by the end they were hallucinating. Regina Mullen says her son was told he could get medical help if he rang a bell three times. But that was also the signal that he wanted to give up. You have to ring a bell, and then they'll give you medical. And ringing the bell is quitting. Now, that, that is a game that the instructors play that's absolutely true that they say stuff like that is absolutely untrue that they meant it. Robert Adams is a medical doctor and former SEAL. He wrote a book about Hell Week. Adams says medical teams are there to monitor candidates, at least during the exercise. I've over the years followed SEAL training as a physician looking back and, and seen numerous reports of pneumonia, usually in somebody that's pulled out of Hell Week and told you can't go on, you know, and they're screaming, please don't pull me. If they don't continue, candidates either leave or they can be rolled back to try again with a later class. Mullen had already been rolled back once. Regina Mullen says SEALs told her that instructors liked Kyle and they pushed him to finish the last couple of days. But she says candidates shouldn't have to decide if they can do it. They probably don't even know what day to week it is. They're probably delirious, altered mental status. How could you expect them to make that decision knowing what their medical condition is? The U.S. military often talks about training like you fight. Hell Week is more of a test of physical and psychological endurance. Instructors try to push candidates past what they think are their limits. Jeff Butler is a former SEAL. Really, the goal of it is to weed out uh, people that aren't going to uh, just have the, the mental fortitude to not quit when it gets absolutely terrible. I mean, guys that will go until they have literally life-threatening pneumonia. Butler's father was also a SEAL. While warfare has changed dramatically over the decades, Hell Week hasn't. It's a ritual to see who gets to be part of their, their organization. That's, I mean, they're considered themselves gatekeepers of who is good enough to be in the community. Uh, that's how the instructors often saw themselves. Secretary of the Navy Carlos del Toro told Congress in May that after Mullen's death, the SEALs now have medical staff available instead of just on call after Hell Week. His mother says that's not enough. She says they need an outside investigation. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. Has this happened to you? Some San Diegans say their water has been tasting funny lately, and it's not their imagination. There is something in the water, but the city says it's not harmful. To explain what's happening, here's KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado. That's good water. You know? Salud. Cheers. Michael Simpson, the general manager of Barrio Star Restaurant and Bar, says locals aren't just coming in for his delicious Mexican soul food. This lady came in yesterday. She said, oh, my God, a good glass of water. It feels good. 
He says they have a great filtration system, but keeps hearing customers complain about the taste and smell of what's coming out of their faucets in Bankers Hill. A lot of customers that live in the area, regulars from the restaurant, have mentioned that the water tastes like, uh, like basically dirt, uh, that it has this aftertaste that is really ugly. The city of San Diego says the change in taste and smell is caused by an organic compound called MIB that's not toxic or harmful. The city says the change is only temporary. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. Coming up, COVID cases rising. We'll have that story and more next, just after the break. Don't go away. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. In an all too familiar trend, COVID case numbers are on the rise. The latest numbers from San Diego County show COVID cases are averaging around 1,500 a day. The rise in cases is fueled by the now-dominant BA5 subvariant. Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, spoke with KPBS's Jade Heidman about the rise in cases and the new variants. For the third summer in a row, we're being faced with a lot of uncertainties in what we know about the virus. Did you anticipate this rise in cases? Yes, unfortunately, we saw this BA5 uh, starting to really take off weeks ago. So this was unfortunately our destiny to see it become the dominant variant throughout the country and and certainly um, particularly in California and here in San Diego. We hear a lot about the need for a better vaccine to address the current subvariants we're now dealing with. Uh, what's the latest on that? Well, there was a meeting of the advisory board of FDA recently, and they suggested that BA5 should be the booster, hopefully be ready in November. That's a much better plan than using the original Omicron BA1 booster, which we've gone so far away in a matter of months. But The problem really, Jade, is where are we going to be in November or December? With variants BA4 and BA5 able to circumvent current vaccines and boosters, what do you think is a good strategy for immunization right now? Right. Well, it's really important that uh, for people who can get a fourth shot, age 50 and older, immunocompromised people, and really anyone who wants one, because we're about to be throwing away tens of millions of them in this country, they should get a fourth shot because even though it's from the original strain, it enhances immunity. It's much broader than without that fourth shot. You know, once you go four to six months from the first booster, there's vulnerability. The other thing, of course, is that we have to gear up more with respect to the, the things we know help, like masks, like distancing and high quality masks, like filtration and ventilation. But even with all that, there's many more reports of outdoor transmission these days because this is such a hyper transmissible version of the virus. BA5 is the worst 
version of the virus we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. So we really do need to have better armamentarium. Ideally, Jay, that would be a pan-coronavirus vaccine, which should be in the works right now, but it really isn't at high gear. And also mucosal nasal spray vaccines, which would block transmission. So we know the things that we should be doing, we're just not doing them. And reinfection has been a major concern. Why is this BA5 so likely to cause a recurrence of COVID in people who have already gone through it? Yeah, I think the best way to put it is escape artist. This BA5 is so different, so distant as a protein genomically from the original Omicron and from anything prior to that, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. It's so distant that our immune system doesn't see it as it should. Uh, And even if you had a BA1 infection, uh, you know, back in January of Omicron, which is 40% of Americans, uh, there's not much cross immunity. There's some, but not much much at all. So that's why we're propensity for reinfections is really quite high. Uh, And so this idea, this complacency is Oh, I had Omicron. I've had vaccination. I'm I'm Teflon coated. Well, that's wrong because BA5 is just such a challenge. And can you talk about how multiple COVID infections impact the human body? I mean, does it raise the risk for heart problems, diabetes, and so on? Yes, this was a, a very large recent study from the Veterans Administration, which is, as you know, our largest healthcare system in the United States. And it did indeed suggest that these reinfection and two or three infections adds more to this, whether it's the heart and blood vessels or the brain, chance of diabetes, long COVID. These are the problems of just having this uh, laissez-faire complacent position because there's a cumulative issue. It's not that the second infection is worse or the third infection is worse. It's just that having these combined hits it appears to be linked with other adverse outcomes. That was Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host, Jade Heidman. New technology has made its way into San Diego operating rooms. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman tells us about a visual enhancement tool that doctors here are using for the first time. Shoulder surgeries at Scripps Health are taking on a whole new dimension. Bringing VR or mixed reality to the operating room has been an interest for for a while now. Orthopedic surgeon Brian Rebayetto is the first Scripps doctor to use a mixed reality system for shoulder replacement surgeries. It's not virtual reality because doctors can still see what they're doing. Surgeons wear a headset with special eyeglasses. They show holographic surgery models in three dimensions. To the doctor, the images look like they're almost suspended up in the air. Shoulder replacement, as in a lot of surgery, it's a game of millimeters. And, uh, you know, to be off by just a little bit can really have severe implications. Last week, Rebayetto successfully completed his first shoulder implant using this new mixed reality system. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. For some, retirement means traveling the world or spending more time with grandchildren. But for one San Marcos resident, it means connecting with his roots and building a Viking ship. KPBS North County reporter Alexander Wynn brings us his story. 
Meet Tom Kottmeyer. The next thing we're doing after this is finished, we're going to put the decks in here. It doesn't need to be very precise, but if it's not well fitted, then it doesn't look right. He's a retired sailor, and he's building a boat, and not just any boat, a Viking ship. Why? Because they're very beautiful and excellent sailboats. That's my real motivation. Kottmeyer's love for Viking ships started in 2001 when he and other volunteers helped build a replica Viking ship in Vancouver, Canada. He was that ship's first captain. I found it such a lovely, excellent sailboat to be on that I thought this would be great to build my own sometime. After talking about it for decades, Kottmeyer set about to finally build the ship when he retired in 2018. But he didn't have the space needed. In early 2000, he was able to fulfill his dream when the Sons of Norway Lodge in Vista offered to let him build on their property. About a year and a half into the project, Kottmeyer made a presentation at the lodge to ask for volunteers to help. That's where he met Ivar Schoenmeyer, a semi-retired engineer. Yeah, I wanted to learn how to build a Viking ship. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and what is a Viking club without a Viking ship? I've been waiting for this for five years, for someone to come around and say, let's build a Viking ship. Since then, Schoenmeyer has been driving down from San Juan Capistrano two days a week. Last fall, the lodge needed the land back to start hosting events again. Kottmeyer posted on the Nextdoor app to find a new home for the project. It's just, uh, it was amazing. I, I had 80 responses to the, to the message, and 10 of, them, 10 of them offered space. That's how the ship ended up here in this backyard in Vista. Kottmeyer says the family is of Scandinavian descent. The ship is called Sleepnir. When it's all done, it will seat eight sailors, four on each side. The name came from Norse mythology. Schlipner is Odin's eight-legged horse. Kottmeyer based the plans on the ship he built in Vancouver, which was a replica of the Gotstad, a 78-foot Viking ship unearthed from an ancient burial mound in Norway in the late 1800s. This is 33 feet. Some of the Viking ships were 75 and even more long, and they could carry 50, 60, maybe even 100 people on board on long voyages. They carried all the provisions, they carried live animals, cattle and whatnot. It's a scaled-down version of the Goldstadt, which created its own set of problems. But the, the problem when you scale something like this, like this is almost half scale, is it's okay lengthwise, but people are not half scale. Yeah. So we are stepping into <laughs> yeah, we're a sitting half kind of... scale boat, and that is why we're sitting up. Because yeah, right. in, in, if, if, we had, if it had been the, the real Gokstad ship, these boards would be up here. Right. And so now we're going to be pretty close to the water. That will be interesting when we launch this yeah. to see, are but we it... going to get swamped? No, we're not. <laughs> no. <laughs> are we going you, to he's worried about, me, about the ship sinking. It's not going to sink. The ship is almost ready for prime time. Oh yeah, we've still got a ways to go. Kottmeyer hopes to have it ready for its maiden voyage in San Diego Bay this summer. After its maiden trip, the ship will be shipped to Norway in 2024 so Kottmeyer can sail into Stockholm Harbor. In Vista, Alexander Nguyen, KPPS News. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.